Today, you are going to get a front row seat to the memorable Springbok career of Hugh Reese Edwards. Hugh, welcome to Front Row Rugby. Thanks, Peter. Very happy to be here. Lovely to have you here as well. Now, let's begin with a look at the trivia question. In 2007, the Springboks recorded a 105-13 win over a certain team in a World Cup warm-up match. Name the opponent. Now, if you know the answer to the question, you can put it in the comment section down below. And we'll also find out if Hugh knows the answer, but we'll do that at the end of our conversation. Hugh, I'd like to begin in 1992. Talk to me about how you were feeling at the start of the year, given that we didn't really know if international rugby was going to become a thing for South Africa. And maybe you might have been a little bit close to retirement. Yeah, look, it all starts a bit before that. Uh, 1986, when the Cavaliers came over. 85, 86, that's, that's when I thought I was playing my best rugby. Um, and then back in Natal, Andre Jabeur came down there and I realised if I wanted to carry on playing, I was going to have to pull my finger out. And, uh, yeah, I just went from just working hard, playing hard, trying to become a better player. And I think Juba being here, that really pushed me and motivated me and was fantastic for it. But by the time it came to 1982, I mean, we played the Curry Cup final and um up in Joburg and a couple of us took a few beers and we went to a back room because we knew at the at the cocktail party they were going to announce the squad and I had no no thoughts I was going to get into the squad at all. Never never thought about it. And um I'm just trying to think of the guy's name, the the um, guy from the Transvaal, he came running over to me and he said, Listen, you need to get inside. Bring your blazer, put your tie on, you need to get inside. And I went inside and uh, I'd been announced that I was part of the Turin squad. It was an absolute shock. It really was. Um, but still, one of those shocks that uh, I'll never forget. And obviously, uh, um, just something that's part of my highlights of my career, I guess. And how were you feeling ahead of your test debut against France? Nervous, as you can imagine. Uh, the big thing was we had uh, we had a coach in John Williams who who was... English name, but very, very Afrikaans. And all the management was Afrikaans, and uh, no one spoke English. And a guy like Steve Atherton, who was with us, could not speak any Afrikaans, couldn't understand Afrikaans. So it was really difficult for him. Um, but we always felt that we're sort of getting moved across and not really being looked after as much as we are hoping to be looked after. We, we just felt we're sort of outsiders, as Natalians did in those days. Um, but um, when I got the nod, uh, again, surprise. But uh, a great, a great experience, wonderful, wonderful time. Um, the camaraderie in the team is something I'll never forget. It's uh, something that I can relate to when I see these guys go in there and they're prepared to bash the hell out of other people for the sake of the guys next to them and obviously for the people back home. So, no, really nervous. Uh, I remember that. and uh, But obviously a very special moment. And we won that match as well. It turns out to be our first victory since readmission. How special was that? Well, I, th I think the moment of playing was probably more than the victory for me. Um, you know, as I said, I I'd waited till now from 1986. I thought that was my time. And um, when I couldn't make it then, I thought, okay, I was not going to make it. I really did. Uh, and then just the, the, the whole making the team, going on tour, going to France, uh, practicing, going into hotels where... Val Bartman and I had to share a single, not a single bed, a double bed, because uh, they didn't give us two single beds. Um, things like that and um, playing midweek games, just the whole build-up was fantastic. And 
you know, I think by the time we time we came to win the first test, it wasn't a case of really that we we we're now going to win. It was I think we really believed we were going to win. Um, and when it came to the second test, we lost that one. I think uh, you know the guys are quite shocked and unhappy about it. And um, so it wasn't the biggest feeling of joy and everything. It was more relief, but I think it was something that we really expected. You mentioned there sharing a double bed with Val Bartman. I've heard from some of the Springboks that I've had on the show that that Tour of France was actually quite tough. And they mentioned things like the accommodation. Some of the guys didn't really like the food. Uh, there was issues with transportation, facilities, training facilities uh, specifically. How did you find it? Uh, there's no doubt in my mind it was uh, a, a campaign, if you want to use that word, a campaign to really put us off our track. I mean, I remember we rode into, I can't remember which city it was, and we stopped outside a hotel and Nasu is captain to said, hold on, boys, no one get off the bus. And he went inside with management, came out uh, with the liaison office and said, we're not staying here. We cannot. It, was, it wasn't up to it. We went to this other hotel and that's where Val and I ended up in a room. And Val was phoning downstairs till about 11 o'clock at night because he couldn't share a bed with the Soti. And at the end of the day, I just jumped onto the side, one side of the bed, and next moment the suitcase came down between Vol and I. I dropped the suitcase, and that's how we slept the first night. The second night was no better. Um, and that's how they looked after us. We'd go to training, as you said, training facilities, things that we were meant to have there weren't there. They'd been redire redirected. Um, I really think we were... Um, you know, not it, it wasn't the way South Africans look after opposition. I know the way we look after opposition and teams, touring teams here, we really go out of a way to help them and make them really feel welcome and special. It wasn't that when we went there. Um, our final dinner, I remember that, was was quite a mess. Um, and, and yeah, it, it from that point of view, it wasn't great. But the camaraderie of the Springboks and the supporters over there, because there was a huge support because it was the first tour, that was fantastic. And that's what you remember as well. As you mentioned, we won the first test, lost the second, and then we moved on to England uh, for the second leg of that tour. How much of a letdown was it that you missed out on the test at Twickenham? Yeah, I think Twickenham was something I always, uh, or a place that I always wanted to play. I mean, when we walked into the stadium and had a look, it, it's, it's, it was extraordinary, you know, as, as it is today. Um, I was really hoping I was going to make it. Um, I didn't make it. Um, but what was more surprising to me was uh, the five or six of us who didn't make it. We were put up on another floor. So the whole team stayed on, let's say it was the seventh floor. We were put on the 14th floor and told, see you after the game. And it always came back to me, especially in my coaching days now, that if somebody got injured, like you see now, practicing in the warm-up, guys get injured, who's going to take their place? Because we had nothing to do, we went out in the town, we joined supporters. In fact, they even arranged us to go to pubs where the supporters would be before the game and the days before the game. And that's uh, that's what we did. It was uh, not playing was not nice, but uh, getting out and being with uh, the South African support, that was fantastic. And then on to 1993, you mentioned John Williams there. He was then out of the picture. Ian McIntosh had become the new Springbok coach. And he selected Theo van Rensburg ahead of you uh, for the first two tests against France and also the first test in Australia, which we won in Sydney, which we'll come to in a moment. But I'm interested to hear, Hugh, how frustrating was it for you to miss out on those first few tests in 93? 
Well, what was frustrating was Theo had missed the tackle against Tony Watson in 1990, and I thought Mac would remember that. And uh, look, I, I've got no qualms. Uh, as I said, I, I had 92. I was surprised I made the side. 93, I was really grateful. I also made Springbok 7s in 93, so that was fantastic. Um, but to get any chance to go and tour, um, even though I played more midweek games under the tests, it, it's, I, I'll never regret it. I, I loved it. Unfortunately, it all came too late. But not being able to play the first couple of tests, uh, yeah, it, it, I think when you watch, you learn, and that's what you need to do. Uh, and if you lose, you learn. And as long as you're doing that, you're better yourself. And, and that's what sort of, uh, I think, started to happen with us. Uh, we try to get better. It didn't help Mac too much in his career. But, um, yeah, look, missing out the first couple, I missed out the first couple, but came back and uh, I got my third test, and, and that happened to be the last test. And we'll discuss that in a moment as well. You mentioned a moment earlier about France, what it was like touring the country and the difficulties thereof. How did Australia compare? Totally different story. Um, Australia, we're well looked after, taken out, uh, not wined and dined, but certainly dined. Um, I remember going out in, on tours around um, Sydney Harbour, um, going out to um, Great Barrier Reef, um, just really well looked after, totally different story, a totally different atmosphere. Um, although French is a lot, France is a lot more passionate about their rugby, um, and within uh, within Australia, I think it was about sport number four or five then in those days, and most probably still is. Um, it wasn't as big, but uh, the locals certainly looked after us. And um, wherever we went, whichever city we went to, we were well looked after. Hey, if you're enjoying this video, why not consider becoming a patron? It's my dream, guys, to do this full time. And with a small financial contribution, you can help me realize that dream. The link and the QR code is appearing on your screen right now, and I'll also put it down in the description area for you to go and click on at a later stage if you would like to do so. And by becoming a patron, I promise there will be great benefits for members. Now let's get back to the interview. Now I know that you didn't play in that first test match against Australia, which we won in Sydney, but talk to me about how the boys were feeling after that victory against the then world champions. Well, I think I think the first thing that comes to mind is we know how to celebrate. Um, when you get that night off and you go back into the change room and the beers are there and you start flowing then from there into, into a meeting back at the hotel. And bearing in mind, very few of the wives were with us, so it was a, it was a long tour. So you had each other to look after. And um, no, we knew how to celebrate. That was one thing. So coming back the next morning, early the next morning, knowing that you've got the day still to rehab and then going out to train, um, I think allowed the guys to to express themselves in that way. And um, no, lots of fun. And and I think it's it's part of the game. You've got to be able to have that big release after, you, after you've worked hard, you've done your job, and now you should be allowed to 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 celebrate, to, to not only drown your sorrow sometimes, but be able to get that release. And it was a famous victory indeed. Uh, you were back in the side, as you mentioned, against the Wallabies for the second test. That one was in Brisbane, notable for James Small becoming the first Springbok to be sent off uh, in a test match for the box. But overall, how upsetting was that defeat? I think the moment you lose a player, you know you're under the, under the cosh. Um, 
And it doesn't matter, and as you can see nowadays, and it's probably more more pertinent these days, that uh, can be 10 minutes. You're down to 14 players and a good side will exploit the space, find the space, and then utilize it. And uh, in our day, to lose someone, which was very, as you said, first person, it was rare. Um, red cards really hadn't come out for many, many years. Um, and now to lose James, it, it, was, a, it was a big blow. Um, and certainly on the back line, you always know on the edge there's going to be space. And in the end of the day, I'm not saying that cost us 100%, but 14-man uh, rugby, 14 against 15, just doesn't really go. And, uh, yeah, it's sad. Uh, we lost it. And um, it's something we'll always root. It's something we can't change. And that also turned out to be your final test match for the Springboks. How disheartened were you that it ended there? No, I, I wasn't. Um I loved every moment of my tours. I loved every moment of of rugby. Um, to to be given the opportunity was uh, I was really grateful, and uh, I'm still very grateful for it. Uh, as I keep saying, I thought I wasn't going to get it. I got it, and uh, three tests later, that was the end. I'm still very grateful. Um, I really enjoyed it. I've made many many friends throughout that time, and obviously a lot of friends I didn't think I'd make from other provinces who who now you gel with. And um, it, it's an opportunity when you see people who get one test behind their name, you can't take that away from them. So fantastic. And it's just as important as the guys are getting their 100 tests. Um, if they put their body on the line, well done for them. You've touched on it there, playing 100 test matches for the Springboks. I think that most kids growing up, that dream of playing for the box, think that they will play 100 tests and it'll be a career that lasts for 10 years. But in some people's cases, such as yourself, it was only three test matches. What would your advice be to those youngsters? I think the bottom line is you've got to chase your dream. If if this is the game for you. If you look at the stats, the number of kids leaving school, who five years later are going to be in a URC side or in those days, super rugby sides, um, you're down to point something of a percent or making it each year. Um, so the minute percentage that make it and then go on to be Springboks, um, the number of those Springboks who can make a, go up to make it 50 tests, 100 tests, is even a smaller number. So the guys who do it are exceptional. They really stand out. They're special. And I think where they really fortunate is is through injury, lack of injury, um, because I think there have been too many um, fantastic um, players who've been had their, their seasons or their livelihoods um, disrupted through injury, and if not stopped through injury, and, and that's obviously the biggest concern in rugby. And if you can stay injury-free and you can play um, for 50 tests, 100 tests, you really, really done well, and hats off to those guys. Earlier, you told me a little bit about John Williams as a coach. Describe Ian McIntosh. Well, Mac, I think, is, uh, was was something totally different. You know, we always call him the wizard. Uh, and that wasn't because he was a special guy on the field. It was because of those eyes that kept him rotating. Uh, the, more, the more excited he got, the more his eyes would open up. And he became very animated. Um, he became very animated at referees, and that's sort of we all we all know about that. Um, chasing referees after games, running off them, still arguing, then making up after. He's always made up after. It's be a phone call and a coffee. But uh, Mac was one of those special players who wanted you as a player to come through. Uh, it wasn't about him. It was about the team. It was about the players, and 
we had never really had that. Um, certainly in the tell, we had Kurvis, uh, Chris, Chris, I think was surname, sorry, who was our coach. And he allowed Vaynon Klaassen and Harvey Pasaki to do a lot of our coaching at the time. Chris Birkus, I'm talking about. And uh, they did a lot of the coaching. And so it was, it was pretty much run by two players and, and the coach. But with Mac, it was, he wanted everybody's input. And he was really special in that way. He got involved in people off the field, which we find now is a huge thing. He got involved in people's families to make sure they were all right. Uh, he got involved with people making sure, you know, did you have a good meal last night? If you don't come to practice, if there's an issue, come and talk about it. Let's speak about things. On the field, he valued people's um, um, input. And he wanted the players to... to and I think that's where you we all learn now. The players are the guys who play against the opposition. They understand it. And so if they played against the opposition, he wanted that input. He wanted to know what we were going to expect. And so I think it was very different from that point of view. Um, you know, in 92, um, we were told, do this, do that. That's what you have to do. That's what you can do. That's what you can't do. And this is the way it's going to happen. And it was very much a bull style of rugby. Nice was at, uh, at 10. And it was kick pretty much everything. And then uh, once we were deep in there, 22, then we play rugby. Um, so it was a very, very different situation, a very different team. And uh, unluckily for Mac, I think some players turned against him and didn't really back him as much as he needed that backing. And that saw his career short. And I know he's, he's well, he's sitting up there now, but he was always very bitter about it. But I think at the same time, he was also very grateful for the time he had. I was very fortunate to have Ian McIntosh as a guest on this show. Uh, I believe it was the last interview that he actually gave. So uh, what an honor and what a privilege. Hugh, let me ask you, who was your toughest opponent? There were three brothers, Western Province. Carl Duplessis, it was Michel Duplessis. So Michel Duplessis was playing 10, and I've always, as a 15, put my opponent as the 10, because I've always had to read him whether he's going to pass, whether he's going to kick, which way he'd kick and, and uh, which way he wouldn't kick. And Michel was one of those players who'd run one way and just turn and kick the other way. Or he would feign something and it looks like he's going to kick him and let, it, let the ball move. And I always thought he was the guy that was most unpredictable. And that was when he was playing 10. He played a lot of his rugby at 13 as well, and 12 and 13. But as a 10, I always found him him to be the most difficult. Nas was always the guy who was pinpoint with his kicking. But you could read. You could see the way it set up at, at a line-out or a scrum or behind a ruck, how he was going to play, where he was standing, whether he was in the pocket or not. Michael was quite direct and quite flat, and then would look for the space. And, and you know, it's something we try and do now, look for space in terms of where he plays. So I think he was a front runner as far as that's concerned. Is there a current player that you admire? I think there are many. I think there are many. Um, you know, if I look at the 15s around the world, um, oh, I wouldn't name one. I really wouldn't go just to name one. I think I think the level of rugby at, at today is, is really outstanding. I look at Charles Pieter and I just look at the way he offloads. You know, in my day, kicking was, I was allowed to kick. So my big thing, I wasn't a runner. Dribber was a runner. And that's why he took over from me. And um, I, I was allowed to get the ball in my 22 and put it over the dead ball line. So we'd receive a 22 kick out. And everyone thought that was well played. So the kicking was was a big part of the game. I, I don't coach the kicking way at all. I coach the running game, although it wasn't me. But um, 
I think now you look at the 15s. Uh, Colby is sensational, not only as a wing, but as a 15. He's something sensational because he'll run straight up into your face, half a step, and he's he'll get through, not get through, but he gets past the game. So players like that and Pitao, as I say, with his offloads, I just think where the standard of the game is now, we're really blessed to be able to watch it um, and enjoy it. And uh, certainly those people who go to the World Cup, to be there and, and, and see it live, it's fantastic. Is there a particularly funny moment that you can share with us from your time with the Springboks? Oh, you know, Val sleeping with Val that, and having him as a roomie was always great. Val never drank, still doesn't drink. He, uh, he only had coffee, so uh, the bed story with him sharing the bed. Um, I remember Steve Atherton. We had a fantastic time. We were playing in Marseille. And every team talk we had had was in Afrikaans. Um, and Steve didn't understand, obviously, as I said earlier, didn't understand any Afrikaans. And in Marseille, this fight broke out, and Steve Atherton, from his 22, hit five guys to about the 10-meter line, just walked up hitting uh, the French. And five guys went down. Some of them stayed down. Some got up. But he, he smacked them. And thereafter, every single team talk that Steve was involved in, suddenly English was used. Because now he was suddenly the hero, and this the Soti could go out and smack guys. And John Williams really loved him after that. And um, you know, he used to put his arm around him, call me so Steve, come here, come with me. And it was really fantastic to see, but that's what it took. Um oh, they're just just so many good times, really. So many good times. That is a great story indeed. Okay, Hugh, what are you up to these days? Well, as I said, uh, I I spent the last eight years or pretty much eight years in Japan coaching and absolutely loved that. Um, learned a lot from, from being over there, as I think you do learn more when you're overseas than just from inside, inside the country. One thing about being overseas, coaches love to share. And I don't think we share as much here in South Africa. We tend to keep a little bit close to our chest. We don't want to give away anything. But overseas, guys really seem to share. The New Zealanders, Australians, um, and, and the Europeans, we always used to meet, have coffee and discuss, and it was really fantastic. I came back after two years, uh, came back, spent a, a short stint with the Sharks, helping uh, consult there and with their juniors. And then right now, I'm, I'm looking. So uh, desperate to get back into the game. Um, just trying to find that opportunity and uh, would love to love to get back into it as soon as possible. And hopefully an opportunity will present itself sooner rather than later. Hugh, let's finish off with a look at the trivia question. In 2007, the Springboks recorded a 105-13 win over a certain team in a World Cup warm-up match. Name the opponent. Do you know the answer, Hugh? Well, I was thinking Japan, because I remember there was Japan, but I think there was in the tournament, if I remember correctly. So I'm going to guess the USA. That's not a bad guess, actually, but the correct answer is a little bit closer to home. Namibia was the team that we handed out that hiding to. Okay, I didn't want to say Namibia anyway. I wouldn't want them to get a big hiding like that. I mean, for them to... Qualified each year and go to World Cup is fantastic. And, you know, hopefully they continue and they do find their first win. We'd all love to see that indeed. Hugh, let me say it was lovely having you on Front Row Rugby today. An absolute pleasure. And thank you so much for sharing all of those stories. And I hope that we can have you on again in the future. Thanks, Peter. Appreciate it.